Hello and welcome to the show, folks. You're listening to City Council Meeting Notes on KLBP Long Beach Public Radio. My name is Kevin Flores, editor at Forth.org, and I'm joined by Emma DiMaggio, the managing editor of the Signal Hill Tribune. Hello. How are you doing, Emma? I'm doing great. Happy to be here. This month saw a return to in-person meetings. Um, I haven't personally attended the chambers yet, but uh, you have, Emma. How, how was that? It was good. It was actually my first time ever in the council chambers. I've been covering it remotely for a year and a half now. Um, it wasn't as cold as I expected it to be. <laughs> yeah. Did you um, did you ever go to the old city council chambers? No, I've never been to any council chamber in Long Beach, so it was quite momentous for me. Yeah, this one's this one's a lot bigger, I think, than the old one. Um, another difference is that the old one was kind of stacked. So the audience was kind of like almost above the city council. Um, and I mean, I can imagine that was like pretty intimidating for city council members. Um, this one's just more like an auditorium or like a theater. Yeah. Maybe that's the reason they remodeled the entire building. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so with in-person meetings, one thing that's, uh, uh, one of the things that stopped is the telephonic uh, public comments, which the council implemented during the pandemic shutdown. Um, but there's been some talk about bringing back those telephonic public comments, um, you know, so that we have both telephonic comments and in-person comments, because being able to call into the city council meeting over the telephone can provide some access to people who may not be able to attend in-person meetings. I mean, some of these meetings go super late um, and people have other responsibilities like jobs and, and having to care for children. Um, so that's something that the city council asked city staff to consider. And I think at some point, probably in August, we'll, we'll um, see what the plan is gonna be for that. Yeah, it is, it's quite disappointing that civic engagement hinges on attending the meetings, especially when you and I attend the meetings. And last year, I mentioned in a story I wrote about the telephonic public comments, there was a meeting that was eight hours long, a meeting that was seven hours long, meetings that are six hours long. So just providing your comments can sometimes be, you know, a full day's worth of work just to sit through and wait for your item to come. And it's not standardized. The order is often changing. So you can't even give a babysitter an approximate timeline on when you'll be home. Right. And I mean, I know other cities um, have already have implemented this even before the pandemic, they had uh, telephone comments. I know LA has had that for a while. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, this will be a good thing, I think, for civic, civic engagement. Um, so we've got a lot to talk about today. Uh, first up is the Belmont Aquatic Center has uh, reared its head once again. Um, this is a project that's been ping-ponging between the city council and the coastal commission for years as it jumps through various regulatory hurdles on its way to uh, final approval. Uh, the council this month approved an amended version of the local coastal program. Uh, this is a planning document that makes numerous zoning change, changes to the Belmont Pier area uh, that'll be necessary for the construction of the aquatic center. Uh, as this project has been working its way through the bureaucracy, uh, the $85 million facility has been heavily criticized for its location. Uh, that's for various reasons. First, its location is near the shoreline, 
um, which has been a point of concern for envi environmentalists who say the city isn't fully considering the future effects of climate change by making such a massive investment in an area that, that could be vulnerable to sea level rise. Uh, this, of course, isn't the first time this issue has come up for the project. Uh, the city was sent back to the drawing board a few years ago after the Coastal Commission found that the proposed design for the aquatic center left it vulnerable to flooding uh, from future sea level rise. However, during the last go around, the city came back with a new design that shifted the orientation of the pool and the commission greenlit the project 10 to 1. And still, some community members aren't convinced that the pool's replacement is a smart move. Uh, let's, let's listen to some of the public comments uh, around that issue. Choice of this site for the former pool was okay in the 60s because no one saw threats from quakes, liquefaction, tsunamis, sea level rise. But now, knowing what we do, this is an idiotic site choice. The site choice makes Long Beach a leader in climate denial. The other major issue with the pool is equitable access. Uh, this facility is going to be built in one of the widest and most affluent neighborhoods in town. The Coastal Commission told the city when it approved the project that there needed to be some kind of plan to make sure residents across the city could get to the pool. Um, and to that end, the city has been working on a plan to provide a shuttle service to the facility from 11 different parks and disadvantaged neighborhoods. Uh, still, some community members have questioned whether that's enough. And let's go to public comments one more time. It's a castle to white privilege. It's in the whitest, wealthiest corner of town. Black Lives Matter apparently didn't really sink in. Uh, I guess the Coastal Commission is going to expect you to buy a bus and throw a few dollars for some free lessons. That's about it. So these public comments touched off some pretty striking remarks from some of the council members. Uh, let's first listen to council member Susie Price. And the Coastal Commission president made a comment about it's interesting when you have residents from the community that is the proposed project site saying we don't want those people here, that the whole idea of equity and integration is bringing people together in different communities. And that's a way of exclusion to say, let's keep the let's keep everyone separated so that we're not integrating. Uh, that was followed up by Councilmember Roberto Uranga, who got a little flustered by some heckling from the crowd as he agreed with Price's point. People were also talking about, why are you building it here in the 3rd District, in one of the, the, the most highest rent districts in the city? Why don't you build it somewhere else where more people can have more access? And they go, well, that's segregation. We need, what, what's the matter with integrating the 3rd District? That's where we need to do is we need to integrate the third district by having people come to where no others can. Guys, I'm, please, can we also? Uh, you just... might find that funny. You might find it hilarious. You might think it's a it's a it's a non sequitur. But you know, think about it. Think about it. Think about having people come to the beach where they haven't been able to come before because they're excluded. Because don't come to me to our area because we have a pool here. Build your own pools over there, and you stay there. That's not what this is about. This is about equity. This is about fairness. So there's a lot to unpack there. I think first, uh, it's kind of fair to turn this question about integration around and ask why the city didn't put the aquatic center in a pre predominantly brown or black community. 
and compel white affluent residents to come into those neighborhoods. Building a shiny new $85 million aquatic center is going to increase the property value in the surrounding areas. And that's just going to increase the wealth of the landowners in a community that's already affluent. So, of course, in the end, the answer to why this is going to be built in Belmont is, if, can you guess what the reason is, Emma? What is it all? There it is. What does it always come down to? It's money. So the city's already set aside about $61 million in Tidelands funds to put toward the pool. And there's some important things to understand about this fund. A good chunk of its cash comes from oil drilling in coastal and offshore areas. And the money collected can only be used for services and developments in the city's coastal areas. So when you think about what communities are most impacted by oil extraction and refining, and then you, th you see that the fund uh, derives much of its capital from those activities, but only benefits the areas below Broadway, you kind of see how this issue of integration is kind of sitting on layers and layers of injustice. So that whole fund is kind of an illustration of how inequity can kind of be hardwired into the system. Aptly stated. So we're going to keep the we're going to keep the show on topics around the coast. Um, and Emma, you're going to talk a little bit about what's been going on with the Queen Mary. The city council got a pretty big up, update on that. So what what do you got for us on that? Well, Long Beach is weighing its options for the Queen Mary, a historic ocean liner that after years of deferred maintenance will require hefty investment in order to secure a viable future for the ship. The council received its first public report on potential options for the ship at the July 20th council meeting. One thing is certain, whether the city dismantles the ship entirely or enters into a hundred year conservation plan, the project will be expensive. Frank Pena, a consultant working with the Port of Long Beach, succinctly described the situation at hand. Regardless of which option is pursued, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's going to be, it's not going to be the, uh, the cheapest option. It's going to be the least expensive of expensive options. City hired engineering firm Moffat and Nickel outlined a variety of options for council members to consider. A recycle and retire option would dismantle or sink the ship with an estimated $105 to $190 million price tag. Though this option would allow the city to avoid costly long-term repairs on the ship, it would also deprive the city of both a historic landmark and a strong economic generator. According to a 2019 report, the Queen Mary brings an estimated $93.7 million in economic output, along with over 1,000 jobs. City manager Tom Modica said the ship itself is financially self-sustaining, generating $58 million in revenue during the last full year it was open. Alternatively, the city could take a medium-term approach to conservation. With critical repairs and base maintenance, the city could hold on to the Queen Mary for another 25 years until the ship becomes too costly to maintain. The cost of this preservation is estimated at around $50 million. If Long Beach wants to secure the Queen Mary for the next century, Dry docking the ship could prevent further degradation of the hull. Dry docking is the most expensive option, with an estimated cost of 200 to $500 million. We've had 30 years where the Queen Mary has had in fits and starts some maintenance, 
but she's at a point now where um what i would call a tipping point that was naval architect john waterhouse the retired British ocean liner first arrived in Long Beach in 1967 after being used as both a passenger vessel and for troop transport during World War II. The ship is listed on the National Register of Historic Places and has become an emblem of Long Beach that attracts tourists from around the globe. Further research is needed before the council makes a decision on the ship's fate. Pina, who we heard from earlier, stressed the importance of a full structural report on the status of the Queen Mary. The big question t- to make a decision on on these options and any other option really is going to rely on uh, what the Queen Mary is like today from a structural standpoint and how much money is it going to take. For now, council members will wait patiently for an update on the ship, which is expected later this year. The Queen Mary is expected to reopen next year after immediate critical repairs are completed. You're listening to KLBP 99.1 FM, Long Beach Public Radio. After the break, we'll talk about the newly proposed budget for next year and a temporary ban on evictions for substantial rehabilitation. Stay with us. Over a meal, over. 
I'm Kevin Flotis, editor at Forth.org, and you're listening to City Council Meeting Notes on KLBP 99.1 FM. The $3 billion proposed budget for fiscal year 2022 was unveiled this month. After the year we've had, it might come as a shock to some that there's no major cuts or deficits. The budget was balanced thanks to federal, state, and county pandemic relief funds the city received. And in fact, city departments all across the board saw increases to their general fund allocations in this proposed budget. It also restores $41.5 million in depleted reserves. So let me run through some numbers on how the pandemic relief dollars have been used here in Long Beach. Uh, We have $108 million going toward health and safety programs, and that includes continuing the public health response to COVID-19 and housing support such as emergency rent assistance um, plus services for unhoused folks. Another $64 million has gone towards supporting businesses and helping along the economic recovery. Measure US, the oil barrel tax voters approved last year will add some new services if the proposed budget is approved. About $900,000 would go into the newly created youth fund and about $150,000 would go to community health initiatives while another $240,000 would go toward climate programs. And we can't forget about Measure A funds, which this proposed budget puts to work on keeping Engine 17 running for another year and also will go toward replacing the city's public safety radio system as well as funding police and fire academy restorations. Uh, For his part, Mayor Robert Garcia is proposing in his recommendations $700,000 for language access and $600,000 for for the Justice Fund. Uh, Despite all the back padding for plugging this year's budget hole, though, it's only a temporary victory for city officials. A big chunk of the shortfall will carry over to next year when the city will face a $36 million deficit and will likely see service reductions. Here's city manager Tom Modica speaking before the council. In 22, we are balanced, but in 23, uh, we have a $9 million surplus, but we have to carry over the shortfall from the previous year. That's $27 million. So it's a total of 36, which is a lot. That is a, a big number. This month's city council budget hearing is the first of many as budget season gets underway. The city will also hold community budget meetings into August where residents can provide input. And it's likely that the proposed budget will see some changes along the way before it's adopted in September. The proposed budget calls for a roughly 6% increase to the police department's budget over last year, despite numerous protests and actions throughout last summer calling for the city to defund the police. The issue was compounded this week when the city manager's office introduced its Long Beach Safety Recovery Plan to address what to address what they called a significant increase in gun violence. The plan calls for a one-time general fund allocation of $4.6 million for additional policing resources and $425,000 for violence prevention work. City officials justified this funding disparity by saying that the Long Beach Recovery Act already provided a $3.6 million infusion into violence prevention, such as funding for mentoring and reentry programs. 
Still, additional police funding sparked fear from community members who spoke up at the council meeting. Let's take a listen. We're not investing enough into our local youth. We're not investing enough into violence prevention, what really works. I'm a Washington neighborhood youth. I'm a Washington neighborhood emerging adult. Our, our, our youth are crying for help. Our young men specifically are crying for help in that neighborhood. And we need to actually start supporting them. Um, uh, you know, the neighborhood walks program that's getting a lot of funding. And s since that has been implemented, there's been so much crime since then. Rafael, 22, was killed while he was sitting in his car right there on 15th and Cedar. Seatbelt still on. These families deal with violence day to day. If you just live in this neighborhood, like Washington neighborhood and others, just for a night, you actually see where it's at. And we need to start solving the problems in our community because we're not. We need to start bringing solutions in into our most hit areas in an equitable manner. It breaks my heart when I see these presentations and I see easily two, three million dollars thrown to police infrastructure. And I see $60,000, $35,000 to youth programs and prevention. It's not fair. That's not how we should be investing. Nonetheless, the council remained steadfast and passed the item unanimously. Here's 2nd District Council Member Cindy Allen, who it should be noted is a former LBPD officer. Um, our business districts are finally seeing visitor numbers increase and tourism return. They need all of our support to keep their customers feeling safe and secure and to protect their businesses and properties. We needed to respond to these serious issues. In other policy news, this month, the Long Beach City Council temporarily closed what many tenant advocates referred to as a loophole in state law that allows landlords to evict their tenants for the substantial rehabilitation of their unit. Substantial rehabilitation was intended to allow landlords the opportunity to upgrade potentially outdated or unsafe units. Representatives for housing providers say the provision is crucial to preserve Long Beach's aging housing stock. Any substantial structural, electrical, plumbing, or mechanical improvement that would require a permit falls under the law. The just cause for eviction was a component of the Tenant Protection Act of 2019, a statewide law that went into effect on January 1st, 2020. The act came with limits on rent increases and outlined a number of tenant protections. But since the act came into effect, some landlords saw substantial rehabilitation as an opportunity to evict tenants, remodel their units, and hike up rents. The fact of the matter is we live in a renter economy and the policy disenfranchises our renters. That was council member Cindy Allen who co-authored the item. A temporary ban, she said, will give the city an opportunity to review their current policy. The ban will be retroactive to July 6th and last until the end of this year. The retroactive date has been a point of controversy among tenant advocates and local government leaders, as a temporary ban does not protect tenants who serve eviction notices prior to July 6th. Deputy City Attorney Rich Anthony said the decision was made to protect the city from legal liability. I have considered their arguments, I think, in good faith. They're not unreasonable. However, they did not persuade me. The council did attempt to prevent illegal evictions for substantial remodels last year by passing a law that requires landlords to attach building permits to any and all eviction notices for substantial remodels. Still, evictions persist. Here's Cindy Allen on the topic. I appreciate past council initiatives to address this issue, but unfortunately, the policies fell short. We are dealing with an inherently flawed policy. And at its core, it's just unjust and inequitable. 
Tenants and advocates filled the council chambers on July 6, holding signs donning the words housing saves lives and protect frontline tenants. Maria Lopez, an organizer with the Long Beach Tenants Union who attended the meeting, criticized the council's actions, saying it was too little, too late. Cover us all. I repeat, cover all evictions, all families. Take the responsibility and don't allow these families to be put out. This item is not what community demanded in March. In the months ahead, city staff will be tasked with meeting the policy needs of Long Beach tenants, developers, and property owners. Councilmember Suli Saro recognized that it would be a balancing act. I want to reiterate that residents should not be displaced without any real recourse because of a renovation project. At the same time, we believe landlords should retain the ability to renovate and upgrade their properties at their discretion. The item was passed with urgency and got its final approval on July 20th. City staff are expected to report back on the item later this year. So Emma, I know that there was a lot of urgency from housing advocates on this issue because they say that there's uh, an eviction cliff coming, referring to the eviction moratorium ending on September 30th. Yeah, the city has made moves to dispense fairly large amount of emergency rental assistance to tenants in the city. But that assistance is contingent on a landlord accepting it rather than um, simply evicting their tenant. And I think that a key component in this substantial rehabilitation kind of conversation is that, first of all, tenants are losing their homes after being there for a long time. But I think a key piece is that there's nowhere else for them to go after they're evicted. We hear officials in Long Beach talk a lot about the housing crisis. And one of the consequences of that housing crisis is that when people get evicted, they often get displaced because there's not enough very low, low, and even moderate income housing in the city. So when people talk about this eviction cliff, it's not just that people are losing their homes. It could be that they we're losing longtime Long Beach residents um, who are moving to completely different cities as a result of these evictions. Right. And, and I know um, folks over at the Long Beach Tenants Union have said that there's they know of as many as 100 local families that are facing evictions due to substantial remodeling. And one of the main things I think is that, you know, this this policy isn't really going to help them because it wasn't retroactive. Yeah, I think that's really important to note is that the main resistances, there are some small or quite large, I would say, tenant resistances at certain units in Long Beach. Um, and they've kind of been at the forefront of this fight to change the substantial rehab loophole, as they call it. They've been the ones that have been coming out to council meetings, sharing their stories. And in the end, the way that this policy is right now, it's temporary relief, but without a retroactive application, they'll still be subject to um, these substantial rehabilitation notices that are valid if their landlords received permits for them. And that's our show for this week, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Remember, the City Council meets at 5 p.m. on the first three Tuesdays of the month. You can follow along with our live coverage of each meeting on Twitter at LBC Meeting Notes. And you can catch this program at 11 a.m. on the third Thursday and Sunday of the month on KLBP 99.1 FM. You can also listen to an archive of past episodes as well as this show on demand on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And as always, special thanks to our engineer, Gabe Ferales, and the whole KLBP crew, and my new co-host, Emma DiMaggio. 
theme music by my colleague Esther Kang. My name is Kevin Flores, editor at Fourth.org. Take care.